Well, we're going to take a few weeks break from the book of Ephesians. Uh, the next couple of weeks, we're in John's introduction or John's prologue. Now, when you think about the four Gospels and Christmas, Matthew, of course, tells the story of his birth, the, the, the Magi coming to worship him. Mark uh, doesn't include anything about his birth. It begins as an adult. Luke probably has the most treasured account of his birth, the story of his birth at the Jesus in the manger. Now, John's gospel does not include the story of his birth like Matthew and Luke, but rather it has the significance of his birth. And it is one of the most majestic, sublime, profound passages in all the Bible. It really gives the meaning behind Christmas. And no surprise that the Anglican church around the world, every Christmas day, they read this publicly. And so if you'll stand with me, I'm going to be reading John's introduction, the Johannine prologue. We won't cover it all in the message. We'll cover the first five verses, but we need to catch the whole flow. So John 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. And cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Now, church, we're going to start off with just a little bit of interactive participation. John's very first words, in the beginning. Now, where else in the Bible does a book begin that way? Genesis. Genesis 1, of course. And so John, who may have been the disciple closest to Jesus of anyone, he was the one, for example, sitting right next to him at the, at the Last Supper. Now he's the aging apostle John writing his gospel long after the other gospels. And inspired by the Spirit of God, he reaches back to Genesis 1-1 and makes parallels with John 1. In fact, Genesis 1 
the creation of the world, is not the oldest thing that's recorded in the Bible. John's, John's gospel, John 1, goes before that in eternity past. And so in eternity past, when there's just the triune God, that's John's gospel. And then way, way later is Genesis 1. But he picks up on the theme in the beginning. Now, both talk about creation, as you saw several references to creation. Both talk about life. We're going to see that in, verses, in verse 4. Both talk about the motif of light and darkness. Both talk about uh, the Word in John's case and, and God speaking the worlds into existence with, and God said, and God said. So all of these parallels between the creation and then the coming of the Savior in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. He does not say in the beginning, in eternity past, the Word began, or the Word was created, or God created the Word, but in the beginning, the Word already was. And a suggestion right at the outset of the eternality of the Word, which we're going to see refers to Jesus. In fact, the uh, question is raised, well, and why does he refer to Jesus as the Word? That's not a title used in any of the other Gospels. So why does he refer to Jesus as the Word? Well, the, word, the, the term, the Word, Lagos, has both Greek philosophical backgrounds, it has Hebrew Old Testament backgrounds, but basically, to put it simple, our words reveal our thoughts. Our words reveal our hearts. And so when God reveals himself, he sends Jesus, because Jesus reveals to us who God is. Now that will become clear at the other end of the prologue. Because in verse 18, kind of a bracket with verse 1, verse 1, we're introduced to the Word, and then verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. God the Son, the Word, the Word who reveals, has made God known. So, one of the great purposes of Jesus' coming was to reveal what God is like. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to be philosophical. We can simply open the Bible. We can open the Gospels and see the compassionate heart of our God. We can see the power of our God. We can see the boldness and the courage of our God. We can see the truth of our God. We can see the humility of our God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus because He is the Word who reveals God. I've never seen it put better then a little eight-year-old girl who was asked about this term, the Word, why was Jesus called the Word? And she simply responds, because Jesus is all that God wanted to say to us. And that puts it well, doesn't it? Jesus is everything that God wants to say to us. He is the Word. Now, we'll see next week in the climactic verse of this passage, verse 14, without a doubt who the Word is. Because in verse 14 we read, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is talking about Jesus. And by 18, He is the God who is by Jesus. So first of all, in the beginning was the Word. At the beginning of time and eternity past, Jesus already was because He is eternal. And eternality, of course, is something that only belongs to God. All of creation had a beginning, but not God, and not God the Son. So He's eternal. He is the Word because He reveals God. So we've seen two truths so far. He said Jesus is eternal. Jesus reveals God to us. 
And then secondly, the next phrase, in the beginning, or thirdly, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now that's a little bit surprising because the very next line is going to say, and the, and the Word was God, so He is God, and He was with God. Now how does that work? It seems like there's sameness and yet distinctiveness. He's God, and yet He's with God. In fact, the preposition here, pros, uh, has the idea of relationship, used of people who are face-to-face or in relationship. And so it, it suggests that this is not a force we're talking about here, not an idea, but a person, a person who's with God and yet is God. And we get right at the outset of, Genesis, of, of John what we also have at the outset of Genesis 1, the, the hint of plurality within the unity of the Godhead. As we're going to see, he's, he's God, and yet he's with God. He's the same as God, and yet he's somehow distinct from God. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the passage goes on, and, and then we finally come to the apex of creation, the creation of human beings. And, and, and then we read God said this, and let us make man in our image. And there's only God at this point, so, I mean, who's this us and our around here? He's referring to the plurality of the Godhead. The, the first faint suggestion in the Bible, which becomes more and more prominent. It becomes a crescendo until Jesus steps out of heaven as God the Son. He's fully God. And then we've got more revelation that the Spirit is also God. And so if you put all the Bible passages together about the Trinity, about the Godhead, this is what you conclude. There is one and only one God. That's very emphatic in the Old Testament. In the polytheistic world, there is only one God. But we see more and more this hint of plurality, and by the New Testament we see, well, the Father is God, of course, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. So, so one God, yet three persons, equally God, eternally God. Plurality within the unity. And we put it this way, the persons of the Trinity are the same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. The same character, same nature. They're all each one God, but they have a distinct existence. They're not just changing hats. There are three persons in the Trinity. Okay, it's hinted at already. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He's personal and relational. And next, and the Word was God. This Trinity this uh, mystery that we, we said uh, in World War II, Winston Churchill had a famous line about the Russians. I think he must have been referring to Stalin being so mysterious at times. And he said, Russia is a mystery inside an enigma wrapped in a puzzle, saying, I can't figure this out. Well, to me, that seems more true of the Trinity than anything else in the world. A mystery wrapped inside an enigma uh, surrounded by a puzzle. Augustine is, is one of the great theologians ever, brilliant, philosophical mind in the ancient world. And he was trying to uh, process the Trinity. Okay, how can this be? There's one God and yet three persons in this Godhead. And he, he's walking along the beach in northern Africa where he lived, Hippo, the Mediterranean, and trying to, 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 to sort through this and how this could be. And, and he sees this little boy 
with a bucket of water running between the ocean, this hole that he had made. He'd fill up the hole. He'd run back to the ocean, get some water in it, come back, fill up the hole some more over and over again. Augustine finally stops him. What are you doing? He says, I'm trying to fill my hole with the ocean. And Augustine felt at that moment that God was saying to him, you're trying to fill your finite mind with the infinite God, and you can't do it. But this is what the Bible teaches us. One God who exists eternally in three equal persons, each one fully God. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, now think about Matthew's gospel, the three, the, the magi, however many there were, coming to worship the baby. Think about Luke's gospel, the baby Jesus born in the manger in a stable. And then in, in John's gospel, we're reminded this baby is God. The humility of this is off the charts. God is the most humble person who's ever existed. He humbles himself to become just a mere two-legged creature and a baby at that so he could die on the cross for us. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, again, the creator is Jesus. Just like in Genesis 1, creator God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus wasn't made. Uh, he made all other things. He is the uncreated creator of all things. So, so it's, it's even more staggering that this baby in the manger in Luke 2, and uh, worshipped by the Magi in Matthew 2, uh, is none other than the creator of the galaxies. The God who created the galaxies with his mere word, let there be, and their galaxies leap into being, becomes a baby. That's humility, the staggering humility of Christmas. He creates all things everywhere. He goes on in verse 4 to say of Jesus, in him, in Jesus, was life. Now that's a grand statement. In him was life. Not just the physical life of creating in Genesis 1, but life in every way. Spiritual life, eternal life, abundant life, real life. Life is found in Jesus. Or as he says later in the same book, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life. Now, sometimes people say that well, Jesus was just a great teacher. He's a great man. He's a great teacher. But this God stuff, don't be silly. Well, can you imagine any other great teacher? Can you imagine, for example, Plato or Aristotle saying, I am the life. You know, we would laugh them off the charts. But Jesus can say it because it is true, without any embarrassment or self-consciousness. I am the life. John 10.10, 10, again the same book, Jesus makes another very strong statement when he says, I came, that is the very reason I came, I came, he wasn't born, he, he came, I came that people might have life and might have it abundantly. Now get that. He didn't just come that we could have physical life and not just forgiveness of sins, but an abundance of life, full life, rich life. Now, what is that like? Well, it would be, you know, a sense of deep peace in mind that, you know, you just, you're not riddled with worry and fear. 
It would mean that you've got a joy that, that continues deeply no matter what's happening around you. It means you still feel so loved by God, so secure in Him, a freedom from guilt and, and shame and fear and all of those things. You have this abundance of life in Jesus. In Him, in this baby who grows up to die on a cross, is life in every way. Now think what that means. That means that if you're single and you would love to get married, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're thinking that there's going to be real life and I'm going to be completely happy and fulfilled in marriage, you are wrong. That is a lie of Satan. That there can be life, full life, in anything else except Jesus. This means that if you are married and you're unhappily married and you think, if I could just have that spouse or another marriage, then I would, then I would really have life, you're wrong. That's a lie of Satan. Behind many divorces, by the way. If... Here at Christmas time, you think, if I just had that new thing, you know, that new car, that new house, that new wardrobe, maybe that new body, everything would be great, and I'd be so happy and fulfilled. That is a lie of Satan. Now, we know that if we're believers. We are people of eternity. We know that. But in the culture we swim in, we need the reminders that life is not in the latest new thing, but life is in Jesus alone. In Him was life. life, And the life was the light of man. I mean, these are grand statements. I am the light. As he'll say later in this gospel, Jesus will say, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will... Let's see what he says. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light and life. He's the light giver. He's the, the, the life bringer. Again, who else? What other great teacher would talk this way? I'm the light of the world. Jesus can do it because he is the light that came to the world. He's the creator. He's the one who said, and let there be light, and there was light. He's the one who came into the world to give us light. That is to give us truth and goodness and wisdom. He can say later in this gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one like him. He's the source of all good. He is the source of all light. By the way, John Ortberg, pastor and writer, points out that we do not know when Jesus was born because the Bible just doesn't give us the date. We don't know if he was born on December 25th or not. But the date was not chosen in an arbitrary way. The reason that December 25th was selected to celebrate the birth of Jesus is because He is the light of the world, and at December 25th, the light starts lasting longer each day. Or maybe it's about the 22nd, but at one point they thought it was the 25th, and they selected, that's got to be the birthday of Jesus because He's the light of the world, and there's going to be more and more light after we celebrate His birth. Now, John, his messenger that we read a couple of little sections about in the introduction, John was the guy that all the crowds were coming to until Jesus came. And then the crowd started going to Jesus, and his disciples were worried about that, and they said, uh, do something about that, John. And John had a classic reply. He said, he must increase. I must decrease. 
And so when it came time to celebrate, to select a date to celebrate John's birthday, they selected the opposite time of the year, June 24th, because then the light began to decrease each day. And he's the one who said, he must increase and I must decrease. And that is the spirit of every Christ follower. I must decrease. He must increase. Jesus is the source of all life. Jesus is the source of all light. And then one more in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So just like in Genesis 1-2 where we read there was darkness over the earth, and then in verse 3 God said, let there be light, and there was light. The light banished the darkness. Same for John 1. Jesus was born into a world dark with pain, sin, evil, rebellion against God, the darkness, and the light came in. But the darkness has not overcome the light. Now, you might think, well, what about the cross where Jesus was crucified? Because in truth, that is the greatest act of sin in history when people crucified their God who'd come to save them. That, in truth, is the greatest crime in history. But God meant it for good. And the whole thing was part of the sovereign, predetermined plan of God for the salvation of the world. So, the uh, darkness didn't overcome the light. That was God's plan. And on the third day, he burst forth from the grave. The darkness does not overcome the light ever. Now, think what that means. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. You struggle because we're still living in a dark, fallen world. We, we have pain. We have heartache. We, we sin. We mess up. But get this, because Jesus is in you, that darkness will never overcome you or defeat you. You will always win, ultimately, because Jesus triumphs later in this gospel. John 16, So much. It begins in the prologue that's laced throughout the gospel. But in John 16, Jesus says this, In this world, you have tribulation, suffering, pain. In this world, you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. I will rescue you. I will deliver you. Now, what does that mean for us? It means right now, we're struggling. All of us are struggling. we got suffering. we got pain. Uh, We're diagnosed with cancer. We're we're out of work. We've got a teenager in rebellion. Uh, we got back pain. We've got tough things happening. But those tough things will not overcome you and defeat you and destroy you because Jesus has overcome the world. And in fact, in fact, at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation written by who? John. The whole message is that Jesus has overcome. Jesus wins. And so no matter what you're going through this morning, whatever it is, Jesus will have the final word, and it will be triumph. So you're battling cancer. Well, as we saw a few weeks ago, cancer is just a little C. Christ is the big C. You're out of work. That will not defeat you. Christ is bigger than your joblessness. You've got this uh, challenging situation with your kids. That's so God is bigger than your challenging. And whatever it is. So what do we see in 
the first five verses of John's gospel, well, we see the greatness and the majesty and the, and the infinity of this little baby. He's none other than the Lord God Almighty. As the hymn or the carol, Silent Night, he's Lord at his birth. The baby is Lord God Almighty. And that means he is bigger than whatever you're struggling with. He's bigger, and he can take care of you. It means, as we saw particularly in verse 4, that whatever it is you need, Jesus has the answers. That if you truly need it, Jesus Christ will provide it because there is life in Jesus. Now, let me be clear here. If you just give God just a little dose of religious activity once a week or not even once a week, you're not going to experience that life. But it's there for you as you surrender to Him, as you obey Him, as you love Him, as you trust Him, then you're going to experience more and more of the fullness of the life that you were made for, that Jesus wants for you. It means that this God who came to the planet, and we see in verse 14, the Word became flesh, became human, and dwelt among us. It means, Christmas means, that whatever it is we're going through, Jesus is right here with us, walking with us. Whatever it is you're going through, God is right there with you. That is the meaning of Christmas. Stand with me. Lord, you are a great Savior. You are the Lord God. And Jesus, we worship you. We join our hearts with untold billions down through history and around the world today. And we bless you for a Savior. Friend, if you're in the room and you've never opened your heart to Jesus Christ, today is your destiny. Right now, breathe a prayer and say yes to Jesus. Jesus, come and save me. Come and save me. He will. He will. That's why I came. For those of us who are already followers of Jesus, let's follow him with all of our hearts so we can experience all the life that he's got for us. Let's trust him as bigger than whatever our problems are. Let's trust him as right here with us, no matter what, no matter what. Lord, we bless you in Christ's name. Amen.